Hey, thanks for giving it up for America's greatest set shop. I say that, yeah, let's do it again. Let Dell know and the team. We spent a lot of time talking with leaders of other churches, and we were talking to a group about <clears throat> why God has blessed New Spring so much and why it's grown. And so I was explaining that one of the biggest aspects, I think, of New Spring is, uh, is our set shop. And I guess I didn't say it real clearly because the pastor's <laughs> wife... Thought I said something else. <clears throat> and she said, well, I understand why you're growing so fast now. But I didn't say sex shop. I said set shop. So anyway, we do appreciate so much. And, and while I'm talking about appreciating, how I appreciate all of you who had to wrestle to get a seat in a parking place. I know I'm talking to some of you. It was tough to find a seat. And some of you are in overflow right now. Thank you so much. Would you please give us one more week, please? Because next week we start our fifth service at 815, and, and that's going to open it up a little bit. So it'll make it just a little bit easier. For those of you who might be open to coming at 815, I know that's early. I'm thinking about how early it is myself. Um, but here's the deal. We're going to do a little something to sweeten it, okay? So if you come at 815, there's going to be, be a little some extra. You know, we, we want to incentivize that. So thanks for all of you who put up with the difficulties of attending New Spring to be here today. Um, one more thing. Can I just say before I get rolling here? Uh, at New Spring, we have something uh, that we call Discovery. It's sort of an orientation. So if you've ever thought about maybe you would like to be officially a part of New Spring, uh, we have an orientation that will be at the 1130 service over in the East Building. There's, a little, there's some snacks over there, and uh, it's just, just a way of kicking the tires. And you may, you may decide that New Spring's not the right church for you. On the other hand, you might just want to get a little deeper here and get a little more involved. So all you need to do, even if you haven't signed up for it, you can just walk across the parking lot at 1130, and, and it'll be in the East Building, and somebody will be there to direct you to the right place. Let me just ask a question to get us started this morning. Do you ever deal with doubt? Even as a Christ follower, I know that some of us are not yet Christ followers, and some of us are still exploring, but for those of us who are Christ followers for a moment, do you ever deal with doubts? Let me, let me see if I can set this up. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe with all my heart. <clears throat> I believe the Bible <clears throat> is the Word of God. If I find something in the Bible, I believe it. And yet, on the other hand, I have to be honest that there are moments of weakness in that belief. At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I can be perfectly fine. At 3 o'clock in the morning when I wake up, those anxieties and doubts can scream at me. And I'm just wondering if there's anybody else like that here today who, who deals with both doubt and belief at the same time. Our series right now is called Road Trip. And in Road Trip, we're looking back at the life of a guy named Abraham. And the reason why we've called this series Road Trip is that his life is like a journey with God. If you were here for week one, you know that God came to Abraham. Abraham was living in a place called Ur, which would be sort of like the confluence of New York, L.A., Hollywood, and Las Vegas. And God said to Abraham, I want you to leave. And week one was on leaving. And what we discovered was God was saying to Abraham, before you can go on a journey with me, you've got to be willing to leave the place where you are. And we said, for most of us, it's not going to be a geographic thing. We have to leave a different kind of place. Like sometimes we say, I'm not in a good place right now. Well, if you're not in a good place, you need to leave that place. And so many of us are in a place that's not a good place right now. Maybe it's a, uh, an angry place. Maybe it's a bitter place. It could be it's a sexually dysfunctional place. It could be that it's uh, a, decept a deceptive place. 
So God says to us, if we're going to go on a journey with him, we have to leave the place where we are and be willing to go with him. And remember, we discovered you can't go anywhere without leaving somewhere. You couldn't come to church without leaving home. And now in the second week of our series, we're going to tackle something really big. And what I want us to understand is this. Everything that happens in Abraham's life flows out of an understanding or a deal that he has with God. By the way, that's true for all of us, whether we do it intentionally or not. You live your life, and I live my life, based on understandings that we've garnered over time. We either live our life based on faulty understandings or true understandings. How many of you know someone who lives his life based on an understanding that isn't true? Abraham, in his situation, based his life, lived out his life, did the things that he did, made the choices he made, based on a deal or an understanding that, we, that he had with God. And today, I want to do nothing more than talk to you about the deal that Abraham had with God. And here's why it's important, because I understand Abraham lived 3,000 plus years ago. It's not necessarily salient Abraham's deal to us specifically, although ramifications are. But there is a deal that you and I have with God out of which the rest of our life needs to flow. When you hold a Bible in your hand, you know it's divided into two parts. The first 39 books of the Bible are called the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, or the word covenant, as we're going to see today, means deal. So it's like the old deal. And then the 27 books on the right-hand side are called the New Testament, New Covenant, or New Deal. The first 39 books of the Bible look forward to Jesus coming. It's as if the Bible says he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The other 27 books look back, of course, and say Jesus did come. The Messiah came. His name is Jesus. This is who he is. Now, what I want us to think about today is as we look in Genesis chapter 15, in my personal opinion, we're looking at one of the two most important chapters in the Old Testament. Those first 39 books, I think the most important two chapters are Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, it's almost like you have uh, someone standing at the base of a cross looking at the crucifixion of someone. Oddly enough, that's 750 years before Jesus was born, 300 years before the Carthaginians invented crucifixion. Isaiah 53 is the most important chapter, but second to it is Genesis chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles or if you have a Bible app on your electronic device, we're in Genesis chapter 15 today. And by the time God shows up and talks to Abraham, they've traveled a long way together. It's been years since God said to Abraham, I want you to leave your father's house, leave Ur, and go to the place that I'm going to show you. And they've had some, some good days and some bad days. Abraham's had some high moments. He screwed some things up. How many, I mean, how many of us, that would be our story? You know, had some good days and bad days, done some good things, done some things I'm kind of ashamed of. By the time God shows up to talk to Abraham, miles of journey have taken place. And so God shows up to Abraham and he says this to him. Look at Genesis 15.1. God said to Abraham, do not be afraid. I am your shield and I am your very great reward. Now, I'm going to talk about this next week. So when I talk about it next week, act like you've never heard it before, all right? Well, let me just tell you that Abraham is an interesting study because we call him the father of faith. One of the New Testament books calls him the man of faith. We look at him as perhaps the greatest human example of faith. And yet, on the other hand, Abraham is somebody who's chewed up constantly by anxieties. Isn't that strange? Isn't that a weird dichotomy? I mean, he's, he does all these bold things, and yet on the other hand, it's like he's chewed up all the time, afraid of little things. Now, the reason why that's attractive to me and interesting to me is that is a perfect explanation of who I am. 
If anybody examined my life, you would find a life of bold choices. And yet I've always, I've always told you the truth. My biggest issue in life is anxieties. I mean, they, they nag at me all the time. And so I'm interested to find that in Abraham. And so God shows up, and it's as if God sort of preempts Abraham and knows where he's vulnerable. And God says to Abraham, look, Abraham, stop worrying. I am your shield, and I am your great reward. Abraham is worried about two things. Number one, he's worried that somebody is going to kill him. Next week, we're going to discover that Abraham has a running deal with Sarah, his wife. When they leave Ur, he says to her, whenever we go to a town, you're such a hottie. They're going to want you, and they're going to kill me. So just say you are my sister. Now, that's a brave man, right? I'd like to be married to somebody like that, ladies. And Abraham didn't say, I'm afraid they're going to kill you. He said, I'm afraid they're going to kill me. And so we know that Abraham is worried that something's going to happen to him. The second concern that Abraham has is that life is not going to work out for him. I mean, you know, he's trying to do the right thing, but maybe something's going to fall apart. So God shows up and says to Abraham, look, Abraham, stop worrying. I'm your shield. I'm going to keep stuff from happening to you, and I'm going to make sure that everything happens the way it's supposed to. And so Abraham says, well, that's, that's real good and all, God. But in verse 2, he said, what good are all your blessings when I don't have a son? So you see, Abraham doesn't, even though God said, Abraham, stop worrying, Abraham's still worried. Well, I, you know, you've told me I'm going to be the father of many nations. It's kind of hard to be the father of many nations. You don't even have one kid. And then he starts into this thing with God about, God, you know how the culture works here. It's a real stigma if you don't have any kids. And I have a servant named Eleazar. And right now, if I were to die, Eleazar would inherit everything I've got. And God says to Abraham, look, Eleazar is not going to inherit your stuff. You're going to have a, a child. Now, I want to take you to one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. Because people, in all the 39 years that I've pastored or so, people have asked me this question as much as any other. They say, Mark, how were the people before Jesus saved? Now, I know after Jesus came, people are born again by believing in Jesus. But what happened before Jesus came? It's almost as if like the old covenant was keeping the law, and then Jesus came, and then his blood washes our sins away. But what you and I need to understand is that people in all ages have come to faith and come to salvation the, the same way. Look at Genesis 15, verse 6. The Bible says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him for righteousness. Notice, church, please, New Spring. It doesn't say Abraham was righteous. I mean, frankly, and I'm not trying to rip Abraham because I'm not, I'm not worthy to tie his Reeboks, but I will say this. Abraham could screw stuff up with the best of them time to time. So it doesn't say Abraham was righteous. It says he believed God, and God credited him with righteousness. By the way, I've never had this happen to me. Has anybody ever just put money in your bank account? Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, we do, I do that for my son, but nobody's ever done that for me. <laughs> Honestly. I mean, wouldn't that be great to go, to go down to the bank and, and, you know, just look at your bank account and there's an extra $100,000 and, and, and wouldn't it be great to know it's not a mistake and, and there's somebody that knows you said, you know, I know Amber's having a difficult time right now, so I'm just going to put an extra $100,000 in her account and you look at your account and there it is. I know, I know Jason's having a tough time right now, so I'm just going to put a million dollars in his account. And man, you can use your debit card, write your check, pay most of your bills with it. That'd be great. 
That's what you and I need to understand today. That is how God does it. God doesn't say perform and be righteous because none of us can. The Bible says if you will believe God, God will credit your account with righteousness that you did not earn. File that away. Now what I like here, for, for people like me who struggle with doubt and anxieties, in Genesis 15, 6, the Bible says Abraham believed God. And I think he did. I mean, first of all, the Bible wouldn't say it if he did. Notice what it says two verses later. Abraham replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure? Is there anybody else like me today who is sometimes caught between those two polar extremes of saying, yeah, I believe God, but how can I know for sure? Many of us who have had a relationship with God through the years were told a long time ago how to have a relationship with God. Maybe it happened here in church. Maybe at the end of a service at New Spring, you prayed with me and you accepted Jesus and you believe that Jesus offers you a free gift. But nagging you at 2 o'clock in the morning is that doubt. Well, what if I didn't believe enough? What if I didn't repent enough? There's that thing I did last summer and, and all that stuff that I've never really dealt with. It's still that baggage that still comes back to haunt me. And so we're in between these two extremes. On one hand, we believe the promises of God, but on the other hand, how can I be sure? You know, <clears throat> that's just a thing for me. When I got saved, I didn't get an ID card. You know, you join a library, Wichita Public Library, at least gives you a library card. You buy an airplane flight, you get a confirmation number. A lot of you guys are applying, just applied for college. You get an acceptance letter. Biggest decision in my life. I didn't get a card. I didn't get a confirmation number. I didn't get a letter. How do I know for sure that I really have a relationship with God? And so this is how this dialogue is going. God comes along to Abraham and says, Abraham, don't worry about things. It's going to be fine. I'm your shield. I'm your great reward. And Abraham was saying, that's good and all, but I don't have a kid. And God is saying, you're going to have a kid. Don't worry about that. And Abraham believed God, but it's like, okay, God, how can I be sure? And that's when it happens. God says to Abraham, I want you to get some animals, a calf and a ram and a female goat and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And gives Abraham instructions that he is to slay the animals and to do something peculiar with their carcasses. The large animals were to be cut in half and placed on either side, half on either side, that would create a lane where two people could walk together side by side. Now, although you and I have no idea in our culture what that would mean, Abraham understood very clearly in his culture that what God was saying to him is, you and I are going to make a covenant. I'm sure back in their day, they had levels of, of security with deals. There were handshake deals and signed contract deals, but the highest form of a deal was a covenant. A covenant was a make sure kind of thing. And usually when people made covenants with each other, they didn't trust each other. And so what they would do in Abraham's day, and Abraham clearly understood this, he saw this happen all the time with people in his community, is that they would take the bodies of animals, carve them in half, make a lane, and the two of these people that were making the covenant with each other would walk together through that, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, arm in arm, would walk through that, that walk down that lane through those pieces of animals. And here's what they were saying by making the covenant. They were saying to, uh, before their deity or their, their pantheon or whatever they worshiped, they were saying, may the same thing happen to me that happened to these animals if I break the covenant. You can understand why it was such a secure deal. And two people making a covenant, they understood the terms very well. You do your part, I do my part. If I fail to do my part, then may I be dismembered. If you fail to do your part, 
may you be dismembered. And so Abraham has asked God, how can I be sure? And God said, well, okay, if you want, want to do this, let's just make a covenant with each other. And so early that morning, Abraham does what God tells him to do. He makes the lane between the pieces of the animals, and then he sits down and waits for God to show up. I don't know if there's anyone else like me who deals with anxieties, but if there is anyone here, you know what I'm talking about. The rest of you just chill for a second. But if you deal with anxieties, you know that a bad combination is anxieties and time. Am I right? Those of you who deal with it, you know what I'm talking about. Anxieties and waiting is toxic. That's a toxic combination. You can wait 10 minutes and like you can talk yourself out of what you're afraid of, but you let an hour go by, two hours go by, and those anxieties start getting louder and louder. And so Abraham now is waiting for God to show up, and clearly you and I know what Abraham is thinking about. How does a man make a covenant with God? How does a woman make a covenant with God? I mean, after all, it's not like God's going to fail. He's God. I mean, how am I going to walk shoulder to shoulder next to God through these pieces? And, and, and Abraham knows he can be a screw-up. He knows that sometimes he fails, and he's thinking to himself, what did I get myself into? Why did I ever ask God, how can I be sure? Morning turns to afternoon, and God still doesn't show up. By late afternoon, the vultures are beginning to circle the pieces of animals, and Abraham is having to frighten them off, but Abraham is more frightened than anybody. And finally, the Bible tells us this. The Bible says in Genesis 15, verse 12, that a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Or in the King James that I memorized it in, it says a horror of great darkness fell on him. I believe that at this moment, Abraham was sinking into the very abyss of his anxieties. Because what had become very clear to Abraham was that he was in no shape ready to make a covenant with God. See, this is what worries us. The, on one hand, the promises of God are too big to walk away from. And yet on the other hand, how does a woman, how does a human, how does a man, how does a person make a covenant with God shoulder to shoulder? I mean, after all, we know God is going to do his part. That's not a question. But can we do our part? I mean, to me, this is the issue with religion. This is the reason why I think religion leaves people grasping and hungry because it's like, here's the hump, hoop, jump through it, but who can jump through all the hoops? And no wonder a horror of great darkness settled on Abraham. And that's when it happened. God put Abraham to sleep, and then God showed up. Let's read it. In Genesis 15, 17, when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed through the pieces. God showed up in the form and the image of this furnace, and God walked through the pieces of the animal by himself, as if to say, Abraham, you didn't think you were going to walk side by side with me, did you? Abraham, you didn't think you were up to making this covenant with me. Abraham, how are you going to manage blessing you? How are you, managing, how are you going to manage being the father of many nations? Abraham, this is too big for you. You just be over here on the sideline and go to sleep, and I will handle this by myself as if to say, God is saying, this all depends on me, Abraham. It doesn't depend on you. You're not up to this. You will fail, so I can't let you walk through the pieces of these animals to make a covenant. Let me walk through by myself and make this covenant based on my own character and based on who I am. 
It's as if God said, Abraham, it's all on me, even if you fail. Why is this important to us? In September of 2013, in Wichita, Kansas, why does this matter? There's a verse in the book of Galatians that I find really interesting. The Bible says, and the scriptures preach the gospel to Abraham. We, we, those of us who are church people who, who've been studying our Bibles, we sort of think of the gospel, the good news, as a New Testament thing. The good news, the story of Jesus. And yet the Bible says, the scriptures preach the gospel to Abraham. Well, what was the gospel to Abraham? I believe the gospel to Abraham was God saying to Abraham, I am going to bless you. I am going to keep my promises. And Abraham, the good news, the gospel is it doesn't depend on you. It all depends on me. I'm talking to a lot of you here today who are like Abraham. I believe, but how can I be sure? In the next few moments, I want to give you something to think about. And I really believe if you want this to be true in your life, you can walk out of here and you can deal with anxieties and doubts pretty much for the last time. I want you to use your imagination. But the irony is I want you to use your imagination to imagine the most real scenario in your life, more real than the chair you're sitting on. You're on a road trip. Let's say you're in this classic vet and it's real. How many of you have driven, and don't, please don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have driven into a city that was unfamiliar to you and, and it was before the days of GPS or maybe even after GPS because I've discovered you can get lost with GPS. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Most lost I ever got in my life was in Glasgow, Scotland with a GPS running full force. I was supposed to get to a downtown hotel. Next thing I know, I'm almost out in the country and a gray fox is running in front of our car laughing at me. <laughs> but let's just say that you're, you're driving into a city on your road trip that you've never been in before, and you make a wrong turn, and you don't know where you are. And, so you, and if you're a guy, especially this is going to be easy for you if you're a guy. If you're, if you're a gal, just imagine it's a guy that you're with because guys do this kind of thing. It's like, well, I know where I'm. I'll figure this out. So you make one wrong turn, and you make another wrong turn, and you make a third wrong turn, and a fourth wrong turn, and there's no doubt about it, you're lost. And not only are you lost, you're lost in a scary place. You're lost in a place where nobody should be in a classic vet at night. And you know it's the wrong place because bars are on the doors, bars are on the windows. You know, and there's the scream of sirens all over the place in the background, angry shouts coming out. Right now the street is empty. But you know before long people are going to come screaming out of those doors. If we're talking about this in a metaphorical sense in life and you've turned down the wrong road in life and you've wound up in a scary place, let me ask you a question. What is it that you're afraid of is going to come out of those doors? What is it you're afraid of in life? Would it be illness? A lot of us are like that. You know, me, I can turn an earache into cancer just that fast. <laughs> I can extrapolate indigestion into a heart attack faster than anybody you ever saw in your life. Is it, is it illness? Is it failure? Is it being left alone? Is it being unpopular? Is it death? You know, the truth of the matter is, when I, when I think about the things I'm really afraid of in life, really none of those things are on the list. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking about the coaching up that Jesus gave us in Luke 12, and he said, I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. I will show you whom you should fear. You know, I don't know if any of you have parents like this. You know, I would cry sometimes, and my dad would say, I'll give you something to cry about. 
I'm not saying Jesus is saying that, but it's close. Jesus is saying, (laughs) I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. Well, what is it that has power to uh, drag me to hell? That's what I fear. I fear my sins. That's what I fear. See, when I have anxieties about my relationship with God, they're never based on God's character. I never question that God will keep his promises. My anxieties are all about me. Because I come up short. See, here's the deal. What you know about me is what you know about me, but what I know about me is very different. And I always tell you guys, if you knew everything about the person sitting next to you, you would get up and move right now, even as crowded as we are. And if that person knew everything about you, she would get up and move. That's what I fear. In my imagination, I see myself turned down a dark street. And I'm sitting there, and my car is idling. And I'm scared out of my wits. And I'm waiting to see what's going to come out of the doors. When all of a sudden, out walks. Out walks a thug. Tied it up with prison tats. He's been doing time. And he's headed for me. I recognize him. That's a lie I told. You know, funny, at the time when I met him, he seemed like such a nice guy. He told me he's going to get me out of trouble. But now there he is, all all headed for me. And and I'm thinking to myself, I'm unarmed. How am I going to deal with this lie that I told? But while I'm thinking about dealing with this one lie, suddenly it isn't one lie. It's 20 that show up that are part of the same same group, and then 50 and 100 and 1,000 of them. It's the lie game. And they're all wielding bicycle chains and headed for me. And while I'm thinking about how I'm going to deal with them, suddenly another gang appears. And each one of them breaks a bottle and holds the bottle by the neck with sharp, jagged edges coming from my throat. That's the lust gang. That's every time I lusted. And then after that, there's the selfish gang. And then there's the pride gang. And, and before I realize that there are thousands and thousands of them all roided up and headed for me, no doubt about it. If there were one... I probably still wouldn't have a chance. What do I do? Suddenly, out of nowhere, Jesus appears and stands next to me. But this is not the Jesus, the tender shepherd. Uh, This is not the itinerant teacher from Galilee. This is not the swooning figure on the cross. This is not the gentle shepherd with the lamb around his neck. This is not the freely man that's presented to us by the Renaissance painters. This is the Jesus, the resurrected Jesus that John tells us about in Revelation chapter 1, where the Bible says that his head and his hair glow like white as feet or like they burned in a fine furnace. And staring into the face is like looking into the sun at his strength. This is the Jesus of Revelation 1, whom John, who even knew Jesus, said fell over dead. This is the one whose voice is like the sound of many waters. This is the Jesus of Revelation 19, whom the Bible says will ride into the valley of Armageddon with many crowns and a thigh band that says in gold, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is this Jesus who is showing up to stand next to me. And I take a deep breath and I say, Jesus, I'm so glad you've come to help me. I'm so glad. I was wondering what I was going to do. Now the two of us together here, Jesus, you, you, uh, why don't you take most of them and I'll see if I take this. 
this little group over here. Oh, Jesus, I, I can't tell you what it means to me that you came to help me. I hear Jesus say, I didn't come to help you. Excuse me? <laughs> I didn't come to help you. What? Well, well Lord, I, I saw you coming, and I thought that you were going to help me. I didn't come to help you. Well, I don't, I don't understand, Lord. I mean, I know what I'm dealing with. I'm, I'm, dealing, I'm dealing with my sins here, and, and I don't know what to do. Mark, just get into the car. I don't understand. Just get into the car. Well, well Lord, I, I'm scared of these, these sins. I'm not scared. Just get into the car on the passenger side. Well, how are we going to deal with all this? Lord, there's hundreds of thousands of them. You leave that to me. Just get into the car. Finally, as they all bear down on me, I don't have anything else to do. There's no other hope. I just go get in the car, sit down on the passenger side. And I see Jesus stand before all the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of my sins and spread out his arms looking like a cross itself. And in his hands are the prince of nails. And I hear the sound of his voice, which is indeed like the sound of the ocean. And after he speaks, all the hundreds and thousands and millions of my sins are blown away out of the street, and the street is suddenly empty. Before they went away, I heard them scream accusations at me. Hey, Mark, hey, well, you belong to us. Hey, Mark, we, we're coming to get you. Hey, Mark, we're going to kill you. We're going to drag you to hell. But now they're gone, and Jesus says to me, Mark, where are your accusers? And I'm saying they're all gone, Lord. And I hear him say, all right, then. Let's get out of here. Mind if I drive? <laughs> that, ladies and gentlemen, is the Christian life. That is the Christian life. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of Jesus, the Bible says Jesus being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down. Now, that doesn't mean a thing in the world to you and me, that sat down part. But you understand, this is the word of a high priest. This is about a high priest. And when the high priest would do his work, having made atonement, he ceremony, everybody, the, the hundreds of thousands of Jews who were waiting for that moment would wait for the moment where the high priest would set down because the act of his setting down meant that the work had been completed and it was finished. And the Bible says when Jesus had by himself paid for your sins, he sat down because there was nothing left to do. Nothing left to do. I want to give you two verses as we close out today so that you will never be afraid again, I hope, to make sure that God's promises are true. The Bible says, and this is what God has testified. So God has testified to the court of heaven. He has given to us eternal life. Now, notice something. It's interesting to me that I, tempt, I tend to think about eternal life as a future thing, but now we're talking about past tense. He has given to us already eternal life. You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you have invited Jesus Christ in your heart and life? Well, at the moment you invited him in, he gave you eternal life right then. You own it right now. You don't have to wait till you die to get eternal life. It is already in you. He has given to us eternal life. And you say, well, wait a minute, Mark. What if I screw it up? Let me read the next line. Let's look at it together. 
He has given to us eternal life, and this life is in your ability to do good stuff. Is that what it says? Let's read it right. He has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Not in my performance, not in your performance, not in my good works or your good works. Like God said to Abraham, you're not up to making this covenant. You're not up to fighting this gang. This life is in his son, and God has given it to us. And somebody said, well, I don't know about, do I have to believe in Jesus? Let's look at this. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God, God's Son, does not have life. Breaking that apart is like breaking a BB. And John said, I've written this to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There are four kinds of people here today watching me online, watching us on television. Four kinds of people. There are people here today, and you're saying, I don't have any idea what this sermon is about. Because frankly, I don't do anything wrong. <laughs> How many of you have dated somebody like that? <laughs> I won't even ask how many of you are married to somebody like that, because I don't want to see this. <laughs> and it's amazing. You know, and, and this is, you know, this is America today. It's like there's nothing wrong anymore, it's a disorder. It's like, I, it's not my fault. I mean, I was watching that guy who kidnapped those, those poor girls in Ohio, you know, and abused them all those years. And, and I was watching him in court. You know, the guy that committed suicide the other day. And he was in court, and basically here's what he said. I, mean, I couldn't believe it. I said, Mary, let's come watch this. The guy said before the judge, I'm not a bad guy. I thought, what would it take to be a bad guy today? <laughs> and that sort of seeped into the groundwater of all of us. I don't, I don't really do anything wrong. I, I don't need a Savior. I mean, if there is a God, I'll, I'll talk to him, her, they, whoever, and I'll just explain it to him. Friend, I love you very much. I want to read two scriptures to you so you can sort of see how God feels about it when we say, I don't do anything wrong. In 1 John chapter 1, 8, 1, verse 8, it says, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves. But that's the soft pitch, the slow pitch. And two verses later, here's what God says. If we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word is no place in our hearts. You ever read on K96 or, or, or Kellogg or something, and somebody just flipped you off? It's like the ultimate sign of disdain. You're thinking, what did I do? Do you realize that if you're driving down the highway of life and you're telling God, I haven't done anything wrong, that is tantamount to just basically flipping God off with both hands. There's a second group of people here today. And I, I would like to have you for a next-door neighbor because you're the kind of person that says, I'll just take care of this myself. Look, if something's wrong with my life, I'll fix it. I mean, I, just don't talk to me about religion. Don't, and I don't like religion either, but you know, Mark, don't talk to me about Jesus. I'll just handle this myself. I got issues in my life. Just give me some time. You know, I'm just an old chunk of coal, but I'm going to be a diamond someday. So just, just hang back. I will handle this. You can't. You can't and you won't. And if you'll take an honest look at your life, it hasn't worked. There's a third group of people here today. And Lord knows I've done time in this group. This is the group of people that say, I do believe in Jesus, and I believe God's word, and I believe God's promises, but it's, it's got to be like me and Jesus. It's like a partnership. And so my relationship with God 
the promises that God has made me, my going to heaven is going to be Jesus came and died for my sins, but I'm also going to evaluate the things that I do. And if I don't think that I'm like worthy of God's promise of everlasting life, then I'm going to worry about it. My friend, take it from me. All this is going to do is eat you alive because you're always going to come up short. And the closer you get to God, the more flawed you will realize you are. It's like running to a mirror in the bright sunlight. The closer you get to God, the more flaws you will see. There is a fourth group of people here today who understand that what Jesus really wants from you is for you just to get in the car. Just get in the car. You can't handle your sins. You can't undo them. You can't pay for them. Just get in the car. 2,000 years ago, the Son of God lay down on a Roman cross. And for six hours, he hung between heaven and earth. And the way God looked at it, the blood that flowed out of his body is a currency that paid for every sin you and I ever have done or ever will do. And the only thing that we have to offer God is our trust. And to just simply rest in him and get in the car and understand there's nothing you can do about your sin, but just put them on Jesus. And Jesus will take your sins away from you, past, present, and future, and he'll say, where are your accusers? And you'll say, well, I don't have any, Lord. You took them all away. And the Lord will say, let's get out of here. Let's ride. Let me drive. And if you do that, your life will be totally different. And the understanding you will have will frame every decision of your life. That's what God wants from you. Would you like that? Some of you just got this. And today will be the first day of your new life because you're going to understand that it's all about Jesus. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer. There's a promise in the Bible. It says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You and I are whoever. And I'm going to pray a prayer. Now, these are not magic words. This is just your heart calling out to God's. But just like I ask a bride and groom to repeat after me, when they get married... You know, it's my words, but when they say them and mean them, when they get through, they're married. So today I want you to pray a prayer with me aimed toward God. And I'm praying it slowly so that you, can aim, that you can own the words and mean them. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner. I know there's nothing I can do about my sins. But I believe Jesus died for me. I believe his blood paid for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I ask you to forgive me and make me God's child. I trust only Jesus. Thank you for forgiving me and making me God's child. Just please look up here a second. If you just prayed that prayer with me, I know we're crowded, I know we're congested, but your very soul is so important. I have a gift I want to give you. Please, if you pray, don't leave campus without getting this. It's a DVD that I did and a book I wrote that answers a lot of questions about how you can be sure and a coupon for a new Bible. All you got to do is go back to guest services. There's a big one in the middle of the lobby and a little one back by the coffee shop. And all you got to do is just say, I pray with Mark. Nobody will hassle you, stalk you, ask for your routing number. Okay, this is just a matter of you getting this gift from us to be sure so that all your doubts will melt away. Guys, don't forget, if you want to go to Discovery, it's right across the parking lot. Thank you for being here next week. We do a message called Detour. See you soon.